This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. What's going on, everybody? We've got a great guest today. Congressman Rob Whitman has been on the podcast before, and he was on the podcast to introduce the idea of his Sharked Act which has now passed the House and is headed for the Senate. He's on to talk about that bill. You know, they're saying, oh, if we vote for that, are they going to kill every shark? This is not about killing sharks. This is about understanding how this dynamic between sharks and recreational fishermen has got to the point that it's at. But when you hook up, you know, 10 or 15 fish and every one of them is eaten by the sharks, at that point, you're tired of, as the saying goes, you're tired of paying the tax man. Congressman, how are you? I'm doing well, Tom. How are you? I'm doing great. Doing great. Have you Good. been fishing since the last time we had you on? You know, I did. I did have a chance to go offshore. We did some uh, some sea bass fishing and some tile fishing, so it was great. We had a, a great day, caught a limit of sea bass and a limit of tile fish and, and some great triggers, so mm. it was great. A lot lot of fun. That Well, you got a lot of great things to, to cook and eat. That tile fish yeah. is one of my very favorites. It is. I tell you, it's nothing better than that. We did some, we went it after some golden tiles, and we didn't have success there, but some blue lines and lots of sea bass and trigger, trigger fish, which are all great table fare. I tell folks, I'll invite them to dinner any day of the week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, we have you back on uh, because there's been some big news with the Shark Act. In fact, right before we we just joined up here, I got an email from the American Sport Fishing Association announcing that yesterday the House of Representatives passed the supporting passed the supporting the health of aquatic systems through research, also known as the Shark Act. Um, and so that's here. That's what we're here to talk about. The, the bill went through. The act went through. Yes. So what does that mean? Where where are we at this point? Well, Tom, it means we're about halfway through the process. So it's passed out of the House, which now means the Senate has to act. And what we're hoping is that we get a a complimentary bill in the Senate. We have several senators that are interested in putting forth that bill. If they will enact that. Uh, then we can have an opportunity to be able to get it into law, hopefully here before the end of the year. And that gets the ball rolling to really force the agencies to do what's necessary, to really examine what's happening with shark populations, to try to develop the science, because we know the science is old on this. The stock assessments are old. A lot of it's anecdotal. And, you know, the stuff that we hear on National Geographic about, oh, you know, sharks are, you know, uh, in, endangered, uh, that's based on old data. Listen, I want to make sure we're using the right data. I want to make sure we're using what's happening today. And the 
observational data from fishermen, I think has great value. Uh, and it's it needs to be part of this particular process because what I'm hearing, in fact, just before this podcast, I met with an individual who is who is in the boat building business, who builds boats for folks that are in the charter business. And charter fishermen are starting to see, charter boat captains are starting to see impacts on their businesses, especially times of year when these shark populations are very problematic. So if you're taking a, a party out of Marathon, Florida to go to Marathon Humps and catch blackfin tuna, you know at certain times of the year, that's almost an impossible enterprise. Mm-hmm. So then those charter fishermen have to say, well, where else do we go? And you know, too, look at it certain times of year at Bihia Honda when the tarpon are there, the, the hammerhead sharks are there, the bull sharks are there. So it's become really problematic for that. Here on the East Coast, off of Oregon Inland, Cape Hatteras, certain times of year, you know, it's hard to get a yellowfin tuna to the boat uh, and, and, and have something to take home. And listen, these folks aren't going to pay thousands of dollars a trip uh, to feed the sharks. You know, it's amusing to watch one or two be eaten. But when you hook up, you know, 10 or 15 fish and every one of them is eaten by the sharks, at that point, you're tired of, as the saying goes, you're tired of paying the tax man. So, you know, this gives us the opportunity to say, how do we make sure that there is science behind how these populations are managed? You know, how do we look at other ways to be able to minimize the the, the conflict between recreational fishermen and sharks? Sharks are getting very conditioned, as you know, to humans, and and they know when the dinner bell rings. They hear that low frequency of an engine, and they know that, that that's, that's the dinner bell. So what this bill attempts to do is to really get out in front of that and say, how do we how do we start developing the science and then the policy around managing how the interactions between sharks and and recreational fishermen uh, can 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 really result in uh, in a good recreational fishing experience mm-hmm. and and let's say that the uh, that the bill does go through and what would I mean does it start with science and if it does what uh, agency do you see would would be a big part of that. Sure. Well, you know, our effort right now is to get the bill through the Senate. So I would encourage all of your listeners and folks out there to to call their U.S. senators. So it's now on the Senate side. Call their U.S. senators and encourage them uh, to support uh, the Shark Act and so tell them to support uh, members there if they'd like to introduce it themselves. We're working with a number of folks that may be the, the chief patrons on the Senate side. So first of all is to is to contact your U.S. senators, both of them from your state, to ask them to to support this. Second of all is getting this into law, which is what our focus is, then provides the conduit for the National Marine Fisheries Service to be able to develop uh, current science around what's happening with these shark populations. Again, the stock assessments, which is what National Marine Fishery Fishery Service is required to do for sharks are old. They are many, many years old. And the assertion has been is that shark are live bears, therefore it takes decades for them to reestablish populations. And they're indeed correct. Sharks are live bears. But I would argue that because sharks are live bears, their survivability of their young is much more than a broadcast monitor where they broadcast thousands and thousands and thousands of little baby fry and they're eaten by plankton feeders and everything else. 
uh, you know, sharks are, you know, have to have a little bit of a, of, of a leg up when they're born alive and they can swim right away instead of floating around in the current like a piece of plankton on, on broadcast spawner. So that's, that's the big difference here. And I think, too, what we want to figure out is, you know, what are the population dynamics of sharks in these areas where these conflicts are occurring? Uh, anecdotally, I see shark populations that are incredibly healthy. The question is, is, is that a localized phenomenon? Is that species-wide? Is it, is it across the Atlantic? Is it across the Gulf of Mexico? Is it across the Pacific? We don't have answers to those questions. So how can you properly manage these species? How can you minimize conflicts if you don't even know the answers to those questions? And then the other side is, you know, why aren't we developing some science to figure out, you know, how do we minimize these conflicts? There are some guy, folks out there that have developed some some really interesting technique using sound and other things to try to, you know, minimize the conflicts with sharks, and I would argue in certain situations, they're they're pretty successful, but in other situations, they're not really designed to be successful, let's say in a trolling situation. So I think we have to look more at those things uh, and it's not being done in any way, shape or form. So this would, this would task the National Marine Fisheries Service to develop a science, that is the stock assessment, to figure out what's happening with shark, shark populations, and then look to at all the different ways out there on the science side to figure out, is there a way that we can, you know, deter sharks in these areas where we know recreational fishermen would like to at least get some of their catch mm -hmm. in the boat? <laughs> yeah. And as it stands now, I mean, you, you certainly have a, a tremendous amount of fishermen that are seeing more sharks. They're having more, more attacks on their fish than, than seemingly ever before, certainly in my lifetime. Um, yes. and as it, you know, if you're if you're going to any agency, NOAA, anyone else, and you're saying, "Wow, there's a lot of sharks," it are you going to do anything about it until there's legislation like what you're proposing here? That would would not happen. Is that is this what is necessary for that stock assessment, or is there another way that there could be a stock assessment? Um, I think that's what a lot of people. When I've talked to people about this this you know particular subject in this bill uh -huh. you know there's some questions sure you know they're sure. saying oh if we vote for that are they going to kill every shark um you know i think that would be a, a, an interesting kind of angle of this conversation of of where that what that means exactly sure well tom this, listen this is not about killing sharks this is about understanding how this dynamic between sharks and recreational fishermen has got to the point that it's at the only way we're going to find ways to resolve that is to be able to develop the science, you know, and folks think, oh, this is just an open door for them to get out there and, and kill sharks. Mm -hmm. Listen, that's that's not not the case. Uh, what we want to do, though, is to make sure that uh, that the science is doing this. Stock assessments are part of the requirement for the National Marine Fisheries Service. The problem for them is this is they are under the Magnuson Stevens Act. There are hundreds and hundreds of species of fish that they require to do a stock assessment. Now, a lot of those fish aren't exploited, so their populations don't have any pressures. So there's not a real timeliness or necessity to do that quickly, but they still have hundreds of species of fish that they should do these stock assessments on just because there are potential impacts, whether it's from mother nature or man. The difficulty is, is they, they don't have the resources to do those. And many times, it may be a decade or more between 
the latest stock assessment and where things are now, especially on a species like sharks that have been considered uh, uh, to be to be challenged uh, and to be put on special status, as you know, under the Magnuson-Stevens Act, any any fish stock that's considered to be uh, to, to be under duress uh, is required to to be put in this in this safety status, and that's what they've done with sharks for large coastal sharks, uh, and if, even for that matter, pelagics. Some of them they've stopped any sort of recreational catch. A lot of the others they've stopped any sort of commercial catch. The the difficulty is is those requirements and regulations were based on stock assessments that were done years and years and years ago. And we all know anecdotally that things have changed. Mm -hmm. So the question is, you know, why are we using an old management regime based upon a condition we see today that doesn't seem to reflect what the old stock assessment says is happening with these populations. So it's just a matter of trying to make good decisions. It's not about killing sharks. It's about, are we doing the right thing to manage shark populations? And, and I would argue that, you know, we don't have current data to, 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 to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. There's so it's such a hot subject. You know, I mean, if you mentioned sharks, obviously the discovery channel and shark week has done a very good job um, of, of, you know, having people be interested in sharks. And I think that's great. Like the shark is a apex predator in the ocean and we definitely yeah. need sharks. As soon as you mention that there may be too many in certain areas, some people just shut their mind off to that. They, they won't even have the conversation. No, right. sharks are on a global decline and there's no possible way that there could be more sharks in some areas and it's a big ocean, you know, they're, yes. they're, and, and if, if you're um, talking to someone from Florida, Louisiana, Texas, South Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina, all along the Gulf Coast and, and the uh -huh. eastern seaboard, um, it's pretty, pretty well known by, th yep. from the fishermen that there are more sharks right. seemingly than ever before. Some people will say, well, it's because you have more cameras than ever before. And you're getting more videos than ever before. But, you know, I, I just kind of wonder when you're proposing this and you're thinking about this, this bill, what kind of challenges you ran, you, you probably are continuing to run up against uh, just to even have the conversation. Well, listen, we, we, we do have our naysayers. We do have people that don't even want to talk about it. Uh, but, you know, you have to be careful if you're saying, well, we want to we want to use science in one realm of fisheries management, but we don't even want to talk about science in, in another realm. You know, if we're going to properly manage all species, including sharks that gain a lot of attention, apex predator, they're an incredible animal. Uh, but but we have an obligation to make sure that we keep in mind, you know, what the impact has been and is today on local economies. I mean, Tom, you know, you go through certain uh, areas in Florida, especially in the Keys, where where these recreational fishing businesses are the backbone of communities. I mean, I Absolutely. would point to places like here in North Carolina, coastal Virginia. I mean, those are the backbone of, of those economies. You know, you can't have those industries disappear because there is an imbalance there in the ecosystem. And I would argue uh, you know, we should be having the debate about how, how do we use the science to do the right thing? Uh, that's, I think, an obligation for all of us. And, and you can make assertions about the populations of sharks around the world. Uh, and certainly there are areas where they are overexploited, where today laws in certain countries allow unlimited taking of mm -hmm. sharks. 
That's not the case here in the United States. Many of these fisheries, for the most part, are closed. Uh, if you look at some of the requirements today on taking of sharks and, and what you can do, it doesn't completely close the fishery, but it makes it really difficult in any way, shape, or form to, to, to have a fishery. So, so I think you have to ask, you know, are, where are the populations? Uh, what's, what's happening with local economies? Is there technology out there to deconflict some of these things? I think mm -hmm. some of that's there, but it's all it's all it's all done in pieces. You know, it's all done in buckets. We talk a little bit about this over here, a little bit about that over there. There's no holistic approach. And anybody that talks about fisheries today, Tom, talks about a holistic approach to managing fisheries. You have to manage all the different aspects of a fishery. And I would argue this is part of that holistic approach. Uh, and you can't just say, well, worldwide shark populations are in decline and assert that in certain areas where we know shark populations, uh, you know, anecdotally are in pretty doggone good shape. Right. Yeah. <laughs> really good shape. Um, yes. Uh, some of the some of the most I've ever seen and, and also very aggressive. But that may not have uh, I, I don't know about the, the aggression. That could be something totally different. But if if uh, I think that you have some people that are skeptical of supporting this this bill um, because we have a lot of different little buckets in in fishing you've got you got commercial fishermen recreational fishermen fly fishermen uh on and on down the line bait fishermen artificial yes. fishermen then you've got snorkelers divers then you got people that want to be in the water with sharks then you have people that are feeding sharks then you have all these different people that are making the living basically in the same way but to them, very different from one another. The, com yes. the recreational fishermen and the shark diver are, are basically doing the same thing. They're taking people out on the ocean, but they're doing sure. something very different. But the one thing that they have in common is that they are either purposefully encountering sharks or accidentally encountering sharks. And I, I just think that um, from the people that I've talked to, some people are skeptical of this because they don't know how it's going to impact. Like if they're a shark diver, or they're feeding sharks, or they're or they're watching sharks, or they're fishing. How how is it going to impact these different groups of people? And I think that's a that's a question that definitely has to be asked because in order to get their support, um, you know, they have to kind of understand. Well, is this going to impact my livelihood in a negative sure. way, or like what would you have to say to to those? groups. Well, Tom, I would say to anybody that has an interest in sharks, period, no matter how they uh, how they experience that interaction with shark, whether it's as a recreational fisherman, as a diver, uh, as a as a, uh, you know, a film company, whatever it may be. I think everybody has the same interest in mind. We want healthy, sustainable populations of sharks. And how do we do that? Everybody should want the best science and the best data available mm -hmm. so that we can do that. And so that we don't have situations where we have these conflicts with sharks, because, you know, we, we know that, you know, a, a diverse coastal economy is key to sustain the quality of life in those areas. So having a robust diving community is key. Having a robust recreational fishing community is key. You know, you can't have some of that go away and expect that your area uh, is, is, is going to be healthy. I mean, you cannot rely just on one aspect of the coastal economy. So I, I would argue that, you know, a diverse economy where everyone, everyone is able to enjoy those marine resources and that we don't have, uh, you know, conflicts that are irresolvable and that create problems uh, because there's an overabundance or there's an imbalance there. 
you know, the question is, is what's the science? You know, what, what does the science tell us about the population? And then what are the other ways to where maybe we, we can deconflict this? That's what this bill says. This bill doesn't say, hey, we're automatically going to go into harvesting sharks and, and, and using, using that effort. And I purposely wanted to make sure that this bill started uh, with the point of saying, let's get the science. Let's bring together. Remember, there's a panel that's formed by this piece of legislation. And it's, it's formed with people from all the different interest groups from scientists, from anglers and others. I work with people on the other side of the aisle to make sure the composition of that, of that panel was balanced. So we got everybody's viewpoint. So we looked at, you know, how's the science being developed? How do you design a study to even go out and look at sharks? Mm-hmm. How do you make sure it includes all the different aspects of how people view uh, that scientific body uh, of data as it's developed? I don't want people to go, hey, listen, you, 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 you know, you didn't look at this or didn't look at that. So I, I think that's key going forward with this is involving everybody. Could you tell us a little bit about how that's how that study might happen? It'll be uh, put in place by the National Marine Fishery Service. So we have put in the bill how the panel of experts will be put together. And the panel of experts will talk about the issue, about how, how, would, how would you develop the science around looking at population dynamics of sharks in the coastal areas here around the United States. Uh, what, are, what, are the, what are all the issues there? You know, how do we define what the issues are? As I said, you know, we know there are conflicts with recreational fishermen. Uh, there may be other elements out there. there. There may be the positive aspects of that. As you talk about, you know, there may be a really robust diving community that in certain areas, you know, there, there's not a conflict with sharks. We need to understand the full scope of that. So what this panel would do is to help inform the policymakers, the National Marine Fisheries Service, which is part of NOAA, to say, okay, now we've done our job to define the real scope of this issue. And now we've listened to folks out there about how we would design uh, an effort to gather all of the information, including fisheries data through stock assessments to determine what's going on out there. Let's also determine what are the things we can do to maybe deconflict some of these issues with sharks and recreational fishermen? So we're looking for solutions. In, what does yeah. that mean to uh, looking for ways to deconflict? Would that be um, possible closures? Would that be what? What would be a deconflicting strategy? Well, I, I would look at technologies. I, I, I am adamantly opposed to any sort of closures. Yes. I mean, I know we talk about you know marine sanctuaries and. And I'm really suspect, and not, not that we shouldn't be preserving marine habitat, but, you know, when you create a sanctuary, most of the time it's, it's around the most productive habitat around. And the proponents of that will say, well, we're only, we're only taking off a limit, you know, a small percentage of the waters out there. The problem is, is 90% of the fish <laughs> live in 10% of the ocean. You so right. when, when you... When, when you when, when you take away the 10 percent, you know, and you say well, you can fish in all this water out there where there's no structure and there's no fish living. It sounds good, but it's not. So what 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 I want to make sure we understand is what's the full scope of this problem? Uh, and the only way that you do that is to really get at the science. And you have to include everyone that has a stake in this, everyone that has an interest in this. Uh, and that's really what this bill is about. It's not any sort of predetermined outcome and said we're going to you know, increase harvest of sharks or any of those things. It's about how do we get the right body of, of knowledge to, to know what to do going how forward. How would those people be, be chosen? Would they be appointed and who would they be a cho- chosen or appointed by? Yeah, they'll they'll be nominated by certain groups, and then and then they'll be impaneled by the National Marine Fisheries Service. So we have a list of them there. I can get get those to you about you know what individuals are there. But but what what we're looking for is people with with expertise in the area, both scientists, but also uh, fishermen and others who have the experience there. So I think having folks that that have 
uh, scientific expertise is key, but also people that have observational expertise. You know, a lot of times in fisheries, Tom, we discount anybody that has observational data. And you know, you've been on the water for years. I mean, think about the things that you see every day. And you and nothing against scientists. Listen, I, I'm a scientist myself, biologist by training, worked in the area of, of, um, of seafood for years. Uh, but I understand that, you know, when I would go out and do a study, I would take a snapshot in time, mm-hmm. a little tiny snapshot in time. And I understand that that's, that's a very small piece of data. I think what happens a lot of times is people say, well, that's the only data that we're going to rest our decisions on. Instead of saying, what about all this other data out there? What about somebody that's on the water, you know, 200 days a year? What about the things that they see and the, and the data that they gather? That's of value. Just because it isn't collected by a scientist doesn't mean it isn't of value. So how do we incorporate that type of, of element into this decision making? How do, how do we put that into the formula to say, oh, didn't think about that, didn't know that that occurred? Because what we see a lot of times today throughout fisheries management is a disconnect from people that are on the water every day observing things and the scientists that said, well, we had a study, we did a stock assessment a year ago, and and this is the reality. You know, when you go out and you collect samples over a finite period of time in a particular area, and then when you start to look at the structure of those studies, you go, well, did you think about this? Why didn't you go to this area and try to catch fish? Why didn't you look at all these different aspects? And uh, and nobody had ever given a consideration because, you know, they're not on the water every day. So that's that's what we're trying to reflect on here is to get the full scope of information about how this should happen. Do you see that when when you do have this panel that you, you're saying it would have people from the fishing world, like commercial fishing, recreational fishing? Um, do you also see that diving is is um, important to represent there? Absolutely. We, we, there will be a good cross section of folks there from the scientific community and from the recreational community. So we 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 want people uh, to be involved in this, and and we don't want to we don't want to limit it to you know, to, to people in certain areas of expertise. I want to make sure that the findings of this committee are, you know, looked at by everybody. They may not agree with all of it, but I want them to look at it and go, at least, at least they asked those questions. Mm-hmm. At least they attempted to be able to gather the data there so that it can inform how decisions are made about sharks. Right. So just so I understand how the funding on something like this works, if you're, if, if, let's just say that Noah recognized that there was, it was necessary to do a stock assessment for whatever on their own, right? Right. Which hasn't happened and may never mm-hmm. happen. I don't know. I don't know what, what would be the cause of that, right? It, it would probably be a decline rather than an explosion right. uh, where people are just, we just start not seeing any sharks. And, and so many people say that they're not seeing any sharks that they, they're like, well, we have to go study it. And I guess that they right. could come upon that uh, decision upon their own and they would get the funding somehow. But when you pass a, a bill like this that is proposed, if this does pass, does what kind of funding would that unlock and um, earmark for this science that we've been talking about since we started? Well, you know, every bill that comes through the House is required to have a cost assessment done by the Congressional Budget Office. So there is a price tag associated with that. And as part of this, what we would have to do is is to – once the bill is passed, that authorizes or directs this work to be done, and then it doesn't automatically come with the funding of it. So two things can happen. One is that the agency is directed to do that, and then they have to find resources maybe from somewhere else. Maybe they were going to do a stock assessment, or maybe they want to do something else, and they have to redirect funds toward this. 
Or what we can do also in the appropriations process is, say, is to say, okay, in the money that we give National Marine Fisheries Service, we are going to direct them to say, okay, the the whatever the figure is, and I, I don't have it right off the top of my head for this one, uh, Tom, but I think it's a couple couple million dollars, is to say the, the dollars in your budget, here they are, that's what's going to go towards this particular effort. So it's really twofold. Uh, you know, what I want to do is get the bill passed, and then we can address the appropriation side. But even sans an appropriation, uh, the National Marine Fisheries Service is directed to do this. So if they don't get a separate budget, uh, bucket of funding for this, they still have to find it within their own budget to do mm. this. So that's the good part about this is it's a, it's a, it's a legislative directive uh, and it, it, it will be done one, one way or the other. What was the, the reason that you started down this road? Well, I just talked to a lot, lot of fishermen and I saw the conflicts there with sharks. In fact, you know, I, I go to uh, a number of different places to fish. I myself, am a fisherman. I love recreational fishing and, and I experienced, uh, you know, uh, shark depredation in places like Boca Grande, Florida, where you go there and try to catch a tarpon. You've got a great tarpon on the line, you know, a really nice sized tarpon, you know, let's say, uh, you know, an 80 incher, you know, 170, 180 pound tarpon. And that's a tarpon of a lifetime for a lot of people. And you look at that and go, man, I want to get this fish to the boat, get a picture of it. And all of a sudden the sharks eat it and you're like, oh my gosh. Uh, you know, so very, very disappointing for that, especially if it's a once in a lifetime fish. You know, I do fishing off the Carolinas, have had trips where we just lose every, every yellowfin tuna at certain times of the year. And it used to be, you know, you could fish inside of 100 fathoms, uh, and that's where the sharks, when you go outside of 100 fathoms and they weren't there. But let me tell you, they have figured this game out really quickly and you know been down to to the keys you know out to out to marathon go to the hump there and you know get uh, uh, you know and toss some live bait out and it's just it's fun i mean you watch the you watch the black fins come up and 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 eat eat your baits and then you know have a lot of fun they're great on light tackle but you know the the the, the fun goes away after you know, after you're fighting a yellow, fin, excuse me, a blackfin tuna, then you can tell when a shark's eating. It's like, oh no, here, here, here we go. And I don't care how hard you pull, you're not gonna, yeah. <laughs> not gonna outpace the shark and get that blackfin to the boat. So, I think a lot of people are experiencing that. And it used to be it was in just certain fisheries, but I've talked to people now that are, you know, going going off of wrecks and bottom fishing and and experiencing the 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 same same thing so these sharks have gotten pretty adept at not, not figuring only, out where not only wrecks and and all the bottom fishing stuff but um inshore in very shallow water the everglades are swarming with sharks swarming with sharks you know and is it a problem i don't know but i'm with i, I do believe that there's something that's happened because it yeah. wasn't like this when when i started my fishing career i mean we would see a shark occasionally now yeah. it's all the time and and just an amazing amount of them and in the everglades you see a tremendous amount of of baby ones like yes they're i don't know where they're coming from but you go into snake bite and there are what look like millions of yeah. sharks up there baby sharks well and, and the thing to remember tom too in those areas when those little lemons are reproducing mm -hmm. and you see all these little baby sharks around think about it in that area you know who are the predators for those small sharks well i guess they have big i mean you see big sharks up there too so i, I bet they eat them uh <laughs> you know there's some there's some big ones in there that that you cannot believe is are are 
able to go across the shallow yeah. water that they can and they got their back out that's of the right water. no i i agree there's cer certainly predators there but you know when when you have if, if you have a large number of those baby sharks the survival chances of them are are usually usually pretty good so that that's a good thing listen i i think the good news in this is you know anecdotally in these areas shark populations are recovering mm -hmm. that's a good news story so so the question is is how, how do we as human beings make sure there's a balance in how, how we deal with that. And, and that's the key. And, you know, the Bonefish Tarpon Trust has done a lot to study, you know, what's happening with that. And, and you know, if you, if you catch a big bonefish and you're in certain areas there, you know, a lot of times you need to take that bonefish out of the area because the thought is they exert a certain pheromone where they've been under stress, and that's what the sharks hone in on. So a lot of, you know, again, a lot of research being done there. Why don't we take the information that Bonefish Tarpon Trust is developing and trying to figure out, okay, how do we how do we address these particular issues? And there isn't a single effort that says, you know, how do we how do we address the the issues with sharks and anglers and the fish that they like to catch? Has there ever been um, a, a, an act or a bill similar to this for sharks or for anything else? Not 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 to my knowledge. Not not to my knowledge. So I mean, we we have the Magnuson Stevens Act, which is the overarching bill that says this is how you will gather data and this is how you will manage fisheries. You know, we went through getting a bill out of the House on reauthorization about a year or so ago. It never made its way through the Senate. So Magnuson Stevens reauthorization still hasn't happened. So we're still working on a very old structure for how fisheries management takes place in this nation. This is an effort to try to, to improve that. I had a, a bill last year that tried to improve how do we look at fisheries habitat. You know, we talk a lot about fish populations, but, you know, what's happening in a lot of these areas, Tom, is fisheries habitats disappearing. Mm -hmm. And it's not just habitat where fish live, but especially nursery areas, you know, going away at an alarming rate. Uh, and if you look for Captains for Clean Water in Florida, I mean, man, they're doing yeoman's work there and how to address what's happening in the Everglades and in Biscayne Bay and those areas. Those are the sorts of things that we need to really look at fish habitat. So this kind of precipitates the question overall. You know, you have to look at this, you know, from a number of different uh, viewpoints. And, and that's what I'm trying to do is to say, you know, let, let's let's look at uh, in my previous bill, the habitat. But this bill, let's look where we're having these conflicts. Let's learn more about it. Because what 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 I, what I don't want is there to be this divide between you know people that love the resource and and have different ways of you know of manifesting that and then and then they get at odds with with each other which is you know which is which is not good. Yeah, no, I don't. I I'm that's one of my points that I always try to make is there's not enough of us. We don't need to get separated. Um, we yeah. need to band together. What happened with the other act, the habitat? It, it passed. So, so what, what this says is that uh, the federal agencies will cooperate with state agencies because a lot of times state agencies would do things to preserve fisheries habitat and the federal agencies weren't doing similar things. So this required all those agencies to coordinate. So if the state has a fishery habitat recovery plan, what's the federal government doing to work in association with that? Or if the federal government has a plan, what are they doing to engage the state to make sure state resources and efforts are being used that are in concert with what's happening at the federal level? So, again, you know, we're, we live in an age where, you know, there's not a whole lot of resources out there, especially for fisheries management. So how do we make sure we make the most of them and make sure there's coordination at every level, state, local and federal government? Are there any success stories from that um, coordination? Uh, there are, there are, there's, uh, and, you know, a lot of the things that are happening happen in some of the freshwater systems. So as they're looking to recover fish populations, a great example is what they're doing to, 
to recover Atlantic sturgeon there in the Chesapeake Bay. You know, the federal government has hatchery issue uh, programs where they're they're hatching sturgeons and federal hatcheries releasing them. The state's doing some things to preserve habitat. The question then becomes, well, why aren't you all working in conjunction? Why don't you share what's going on at the at the hatchery with the state fisheries managers to coordinate with them? So that that's a great example about how now that occurs because you know we've kind of pushed the button to say, hey, federal government, hey, state government, you have an obligation to look and ask the questions about what's happening elsewhere so you can coordinate your efforts and you can actually get more done if you're doing that versus you know working. And sometimes it was working at odds. You know, a great example is uh, the American Chad. Uh, you look at the Shad run, you know, Shad come down from saltwater down the East Coast into the Chesapeake Bay to spawn. And what was happening is one agency was saying, hey, when they get in the bay, they're protected, can't catch a shad whatsoever. And that was the agency that was in charge of the freshwater spawning areas. But then you had an agency that was in charge of the saltwater areas, and they were allowing these fish. They were. They don't doesn't happen anymore. But they were allowing these fish to be gill netted off the Atlantic coast. So the question became, why are you letting them be gill netted? in the ocean before they can even get into the areas where they're protected for spawning. So again, one, one, one of those conflicts, and uh, again, you know, looking at what, what what's the federal government doing? Remember the federal government has jurisdiction outside of three miles versus the state inside of three miles. And there was a contradiction in policy in both of those state territorial waters and federal territorial waters. And then what was happening once the fish got into the bay, you know, this bill says, no, you're, you're gonna coordinate with this. You know, you're, you're, you're going to look at, you know, what are we doing here to, to preserve habitat uh, for spawning areas in the Chesapeake Bay in relation to what's happening with these other agencies uh, that are at, at, at that time in contradiction. Now, the good news, another good news story, the good news is today all those agencies are coordinated. So all their policies reflect protecting the American shad and hopefully getting it on the road to recovery. <laughs> There's certainly been a lot of uh... – of work done up there on the the striped bass and all yes. of the different organizations, um, states. I mean, the states are so close. The state lines are so close up there that that seems to be a, an incredibly complicated thing when you're having a migratory fish moving yeah. from federal waters into state waters and moving from one state to another, uh, probably, and back and forth a couple of times in the day. <laughs> that yeah. seems like like a very very challenging uh, way to get everyone coordinated. Uh, so it is this particular and and I would imagine that with the sharks and even the shark science that the coordination of all of those particular states and very close boundaries between federal and and state and and one state and another would be something that's going to have to be coordinated with the sh even with the shark studies. Uh, yes. that, that this act is, is proposing. Um, is that the most challenging area? Because once you get down to Florida, you got both sides of Florida, and then you've yes. got a couple of states over to, to Texas. But that seems like that's a lot easier. You're dealing with one state mm -hmm. and, and then inter, international or federal waters and, and state waters. That mm -hmm. seems a lot easier than up the northern coast well listen and there's you know there's regional variations there i've worked with garrett grace from louisiana and they're experiencing this and of course you know there are different areas in louisiana from grand isle over to venice 
you know, those issues there are a little bit different. You look at what's happening inshore there with redfish versus what's happening offshore at the wrecks. Uh, so they have, you know, a, a little bit different uh, issues that they're having to deal with there. As you've said, Gulf Coast of Florida, Atlantic Coast of Florida, Mid-Atlantic, and, and even we're seeing, you know, things happening up, up, up in the Northeast. So, so this is, you know, this is happening across the spectrum. Uh, as you point out, it's a little bit different in each of the areas. The, the nature of, sh- of shark depredation, the nature of the sharks that you're dealing with, the nature of how fishermen are being affected is a little bit different. That's why it's so important to be able to bring these experts together and say, well, you know, maybe, maybe in this area, status quo is okay. Maybe in this area, it's not. Mm. Uh, and, and maybe the fishermen in this area have an observation about, well, if you just did this, you know, maybe we could deconflict some of these things. And when I talk about the deconfliction, you know, it's, 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 it's not saying, well, we deconflict by taking the sharks out. It may be areas of technology or it may be changing fishing techniques or something there that somebody else hasn't thought about, you know, I, and listen, nobody, I don't claim to have all the answers to this by, by any measure. And the last time we talked, you talked about a gentleman that has some technology that is, that is supposed to repel sharks. So the question is, is, you know, are, are there ways that we can, you know, make that technology better known? Are there ways that we can look at other aspects of what we can do there besides, you know, looking at, you know, reducing shark populations. That's, that's, that's not, not my intent here. What I want to make sure is that we are, we are managing these shark populations. And are there other things that people do in regions that, you know, work in deconflicting this? How, how do, how do, how do, how do folks in the charter business, how do they deal with this? I mean, that's the reality of it. If you're going to, if you're going to keep a significant charter business going, you know, and you continue to have conflicts with sharks, if they keep eating all your catch, you are not going to have clients come back and pay you to take, take them out. You know, maybe the first trip is amusing, but you know, people go out for the enjoyment of catching fish and you know, I, I, I'm like most fishermen, I think, you know, I like to go fishing, but also like to invite a few of those fish home for dinner. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, that, that to me is an important part of it. Yeah, for sure. As a charter fisherman myself, I can tell you that as soon as anyone talks about, I don't know, the deconflicting, I, w- I would make it very clear that that does not mean closure because it has, exactly. meant, it has meant yeah. closure of certain areas. And even with, uh, with some of the organizations that we've already mentioned, uh, proposed closure and and actually got it in the Florida Keys. Yeah. It was not it was not um, popular with several no. groups at all, and and it created a tremendous divide between yeah. certain types of fishermen. So um, that's that would be my my question. You know, just to yeah. be crystal clear that uh, that is not something that that I would want. Uh, no. In relation to the sharks, is is deconflicting by saying that okay, well, you don't get to go there anymore. Right. No, let me tell you, I'm as we talked about with marine sanctuaries and other things, with, who I've been very, very uh, vocal about. You know, being a recreational fisherman myself, you know, the last thing that I want is in any way, state, shape, or form restricting where recreational fishermen can go fish. There are already restrictions right now. Uh, we don't need any more restrictions. In fact, I would argue that. We would like to be able to grow this uh, this recreational pastime. We'd like more people to go fishing, especially young folks. I mean, the mm-hmm. thing that I enjoy the most is taking my grandchildren fishing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's pretty cool. The fish stories that you tell, I uh, tell folks some of the some of those memorable stories of my life are fish stories, and and you know, reducing the number of areas that you can go to uh, is not in my in my. Um, 
anywhere in the in the realm of the of the idea of de, de, deconflicting. And, and just as you know, as we talked about, you know, fish live in very specific places. <laughs> I do not want any of those places taken off the list of places where 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 you can go. And listen, in some areas we know in Florida now there's there's uh, you know there are areas where you can go fishing, but but you can't use motorized craft to go in there so you have to go in in kayaks i think sure. you all did, did did a program on yep. that you and yep. you and rich did a program on that really cool to be able to get back in those really skinny water areas you know listen i don't i don't have a, an issue necessarily with that i mean you can still get in there and catch those fish it takes a little little more effort sure but i sure don't want someone to say well you know what instead of letting you take a kayak back in there we're just going to cut it off totally yes that's not in the best interest of anybody. No. And and remember too, these areas, Tom, you know, we're we're blessed in the United States, both state and at, at the local level, uh, and at the federal level, is that, you know, these waters belong to the citizens. Uh, and, and 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 they don't belong to one user group or the other. So I want to make sure that they're accessible to all citizens for everyone to enjoy. And if I decide to enjoy them by by going out and catching fish, I ought to be able to do that versus someone that wants to go out there and observe and watch the birds. I think everybody has a has an equal right to access to those to those resources. And we also have an obligation to manage those resources, manage them in the best interest of everybody, not just one group but manage them in the interest of everyone. And that's really what the, what this bill is about. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad that we cleared up a, a couple of the things, especially the, um, the access, um, uh, because that has been something that people, um, had said to me when, you know, I was preparing yeah. for this and, and after the last one that we, that we had is, um, those were some concerns. So I definitely wanted sure. to bring those up. I really appreciate your, your, uh, candor and, and, uh, willingness to take on the, those questions. So I appreciate that. Um, so now I guess if people have other questions that I wasn't smart enough to ask or, <laughs> or whatever, can they contact you or can they contact someone else? Uh, I know we talked about, uh, calling your Senator, whether you're in favor of this or not in favor of it, that would probably be a, be a good, good call to make to one or both of your, your senators for your state. Um, but what are the other kind of, um, directions that you could give, whether people are in support of it or not in support of it? Sure. Well, listen, we're glad to have them call our office. If they have questions, we'll make sure we get them the, the information. Uh, they can also call their member of Congress who will have access to that, that information. So I'm glad to have, have them do that. You know, they can go to our website, which is Whitman, that's W-I-T-T-M-A-N dot house dot G-O-V. It'll have information on there about the bill. So if they just want to read, hey, what's this bill all about? I want to know more about it. They can go there. We have a press release there and a link that goes to the to the site where they can read the bill. If they have questions about it, we're glad to, to either answer them ourselves uh, or we can get them to members of the natural resources staff who have the specifics about that. Or even if they want more information from the National Marine Fisheries Service or the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, better known as NOAA, we'll make sure that we connect them there. So we're glad to make sure that people have the information that they need to you know, make a judgment on the bill to give us their thoughts and ideas about, you know, how we can do an even better job, you know, in managing our fisheries, including uh, the conflicts and depredation that we see with sharks. Okay. All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on today. And uh, sure. I understand that you're headed down our way to uh, to fish and maybe maybe catch a swordfish coming up here. So good luck when you're when you're out there. And I hope you can bring one all the way to the boat without any shark problems. 
Um, That's right. <laughs> But you're going with a you're going with a man, so I think you're going to be all right. Well, I think it'll it'll be fun. We're lo- looking forward to getting getting down down in your neighborhood, and if we have a chance, we'll try to cross paths with you while we're down there. Okay, all right. Thank you very much, Congressman. And uh, go and check out that bill for yourself. If you have any questions um, for Congressman uh, Whitman, then give his office a call. Otherwise, um, we will be back with another great guest next week. All right. Thank you. See you.